sentimental journey Gonna set my heart at ease Gonna make a sentimental journey To renew old memories Got my faith, got my reservation Spent each time I could afford Like a child in wild anticipation Long to hear that all aboard Seven After that we leave at seven Could be so yearning. Why did I decide to roam? Gotta take that sentimental journey. Sentimental journey home. Sentimental journey.
But this little piggy was the boogie woogie piggy and the boogie woogie all the way home. This little piggy had roast beef. This little piggy had none. But this little piggy was the boogie woogie piggy and he did the lindy all the way home. Piggy wiggy piggy. Piggly woogie boogie.
down. Let's brown, everybody. It is Saturday night, February the 20th, year 2010. I'm Walton Hughes, and on the other line, I'm going to have our friend Patricia introduce our very special guest. Go ahead, Patricia. And we do have a special guest tonight. Hi, everybody. It is good to be back with you again. Our guest tonight is Dr. Nikki Smith, who prefers to be called Nikki, and I'll remember to do that on the way through. Um, I've got, truly, I've got Dr. Smith um, planted in my brain here, so forgive me if I miss that, but I, I do appreciate um, being able to call you Nikki. It's a lot more comfortable for me. Dr. Smith, Nikki. Right. Is that right? Here we go. I got it written right in front of me, Dr. Smith. That's okay. You're not going to offend me by that, believe me. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. He is the author of the newest, and oh boy, is it a good one, Cibber McGee and Molly book. The title of it is How Cibber McGee and Molly Won World War II. It is published by Bear Manor Media, which is one of our very special friends because they do publish old-time radio books, and that is not a very common thing for a publisher to do. Mickey is... I'll say Professor Emeritus. Is that okay? That's fine, sure. Okay. Professor of Pharmacy, now Professor Emeritus at the University of Mississippi. And you are noted as an award-winning author. And if my information hunt was correct, you've got 27 books in print? Yeah, that's, that's correct. Right? That's correct, uh-huh. Oh, boy, am I good or what? <laughs> <laughs> you got your stuff right. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. The interesting thing is, if I've read this correctly, this is the only old-time radio book out of that group. Is that correct? Well, it's not entirely correct. Uh, I have one called Pharmacy and Medicine on the Air. Oh, I found that one, too. Yeah, that was published back in 1989 by Scarecrow Press. Uh-huh. But uh, that's the only other one in the radio area, although I do have uh, several articles in uh, magazines, mostly <laughs> pharmacy magazines. Uh-huh. Um, I, I touched base before we um, got... On air, I touched on a couple of the titles of the works that you have, um, among them textbooks, and you said that one that I named was a general consumption book on uh, tranquilizers. But it's really intriguing to me to look at something like studies in pharmaceutical economics and pharmaceutical marketing and then switch back and say this is such a wonderful old-time radio book that uh, honestly I started reading it and I didn't want to put it down. Well, that's very, very kind of you. It's not really kind. I'm a pretty harsh critic. Okay. <laughs> I'll accept that too. Oh, it's, it's one of those things uh, your mama tells you if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm saying something nice because it's true. Well, that's great. That's it great. It really is. You, you might be interested, if I may just interrupt for sure. a minute, there's, there's one other consumer book that uh, may not have popped up on your screen uh, called The Retzoff Story. I did. I did see that. And it's, it is what it says. It's a history of the Retzoff Drug Company, uh, which had, uh, it was a company that one time owned one out of every ten, or at least uh, operated one out of every ten pharmacies, in the, one out of every five, make that, pharmacies mm -hmm. in the United States, and now there are none. So that's uh, kind of an interesting story, but not what we're talking about tonight, I know. Well, I came across it, but I couldn't find it. I came across the title, and I was really intrigued because Rexall sponsored some old-time radio shows. Oh, indeed. Most, indeed. most notably, it was uh, Phil Harris and Alice Faye. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so, in fact, they even had uh, one, of, one of the performers on the program was a Mr. Scott, who was ostensibly the, the 
uh, head man at Rexall during the program. Uh-huh. Well, it's... Um, and they did Amos and Andy as well. I, I believe they did have... Uh, there might have been one other. Walden, do you know... Sure, Richard Diamond. Um, sure. Sure, interesting. Um, my, I, one, one of my branches of my family owned and ran pharmacies for over 100 years. Oh, wow. And in the small town in Wayne, Nebraska, where my family came from, there were only two pharmacies. My, the family owned, which was, of course, everybody went to ours, because that's what it's all about. And the other one was Erexol. Oh, so. <laughs> they were everywhere. Absolutely, they, they were everywhere, and now they're n nowhere. They're nowhere. nowhere. They're, they're still active in Canada, I understand, but I don't know much about that. Right. But not here. No. And they were all over at one point. I was disappointed that I couldn't find... Jimmy Durante, that was another one they sponsored. They had a, they, from almost a 10-year run, they were sponsoring shows left and right, and a uh, big, big-time supporter of old-time radio. Mm. When we get finished, I'm going to ask you where I can put my hands on that particular book, because it, it did intrigue me. For now, I have what I would term a squillion questions for you, and I think okay. you're probably going to answer 40% of them before I even get to ask them. But for our listeners, <laughs> excuse me, over the last two weeks, I've asked Walden if he would play wartime Stephen McGee and Molly shows. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a prep for our listeners. They've been now interviewed. Oh, that's great. That's yeah, great. it was really great, and uh, they were such great shows. Uh, you know, they had great shows, and then they had spectacular shows. There was no no such thing as a bad Stephen McGee and Molly no, show. No, no, some of them were mar were moderately good, but nothing worse than that. That's for sure. Yes, yes, and boy, that's pretty hard to say with. Uh, with a show that had them run that they did. So, for our listeners, I'm hoping that you have come up with a handful of questions for Nikki Smith, and um, I hope anywhere in this conversation, and I, I mean anywhere, don't feel that you're interrupting anything, please call us with questions for um, Nikki Smith, for comments about Fibber McGee and Molly, especially the wartime years. It's 714 Four five two zero seven one, just like every other Walden show. Seven one four five four five two zero seven one. And if you think it's on the website right now, and also a link to Bearman and Media, where you can buy a copy of Professor Smith's book. Yes, and, and Amazon has it as well. I, I understand, and uh, I think Barnes and Nobles do. Well, I'd like to encourage people to go directly to the publisher. I would, I would do the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. yeah. Because they always seem to, they always help the publishers out more. I so. think so. I agree with you completely. Yeah. And we have a couple of reminders about that along the way here. But I wanted to start out with the comment that I made to you just before we went on the air that I love this book. I absolutely love this book. And I'm going to wait for a little bit before I tell you why. For now, would you give our listeners a snapshot description of the book and how it came about? How did you as a person wind up doing this particular book? Well, let's start with a second question, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, and I, of course, as I mentioned before, I've been interested in old-time radio just as a hobby uh, since the 70s and uh, enjoyed Fibber McGinn, Molly, and, and so many others as well. Uh, much of my work, even though I'm a pharmacy professor, always ended up with something pharmacy involved, and that's the reason the Rexall story became a book. And we had uh, pharmacist Richard Q. Peavy on the Great Gildersleeve, you know, and I've written some articles about him as well. But uh, for the last several years, um, and this is going to sound, well, it's going to sound what it should, it should sound, patriotic. 
Uh, I've been disturbed about uh, the fact that I don't think we're doing well as we should by the people who are defending us all around the world. And this isn't some kind of political thing at all. It's just how I feel. Uh, my father was in World War II. My wife's father was in World War II. And uh, as I see it, uh, these fine people, and Tim uh, McGee and Molly and the other members of the team, which I wanted to specifically talk about, while a lot of people did good things for the, for the war effort, Bob Hope certainly entertained the troops a lot and deserves all the credit uh, that should come his way. They were the only people that took care of the home folks, as far as I was concerned, kept us all uh, you know, involved in what was going on. I was just a little kid, but I remember it as a little kid, and so it really affected me. And I wrote, uh, I don't know who it was, probably the ed editor of uh, Radiogram or somebody a few years ago, and said, has anybody really talked about this issue? And uh, he said no, and uh, it just tucked it away because I certainly didn't have time to do that when I was working full-time as a professor. But as time went on and, and I got retired, and two books before this one, after retirement, uh, and over my wife's strong objections, please don't write another book. <laughs> I did anyway. So that's how it happened. And, and you're still married. What? You're still married? We're still married, and indeed, this is this year we'll, we celebrate our 50th wedding anniversary. Wow, congratulations. Thanks very much. And as, if we can make it till August, we'll have 50 years under our belt. <laughs> All I have to do is not, not start on another book. <laughs> not start another book. Right. Now, your original question is what, what's in it. And what I, what I tried to do uh, was do more than simply, uh, you know, talk about, the, well, talk about the show and, and highlight some of the funny moments and, and so forth. I, really tried to put it into a perspective as to uh, society as we knew it then, and especially what the broadcast industry was having to go to go through. And I didn't make this stuff up. I you know, did a lot of research on it, and there are a couple of other good books, one by Gerd Harden uh, that deals with, with this in general, not Fibber McGee and Molly per se. But um, another thing that I wanted to be sure is that the... Um, uh, book could appeal at least to people of a younger generation who might not have ever heard these people, never heard Fibber McGee and Molly. And I tell them several times in the book, if you can go out, and you can go a lot of places, as you well know, and get Fibber McGee and Molly tapes, or you can go on the web, uh, that you really need to hear some of this because part of the story is, is the way they deliver. But uh, I do spend considerable time on the uh, broadcast industry and the regulatory aspects of doing that kind of work during the war. Uh, spend considerable time on the Johnson's Wax people. I, in fact, I can I call their chapter the perfect sponsor because they gave up a great deal of their airtime uh, to uh, support the war effort and and let uh, the writers, which is uh, the third third part of the Three Musketeers that I see, uh, Don Quinn and uh, later Phil Leslie, let them write whatever they wanted. Uh, they exercised little or no control, uh, and and in fact. Uh, um, uh, Don Quinn even wrote many of the commercials that were embedded in the middle of the show and, and made them World War II commercials as well uh -huh. as Johnson's Wax commercials. So that's kind of it. And then the heart of it is a great, great number of excerpts from the shows themselves off the tapes. And they're all World War II oriented. They are the ones I put in the book, yeah. Which not... is, um, this is a much finer focus than anyone else. I, in that I, I can't remember seeing something with that highly specific focus and a particular time period ever in an old-time radio book, and I'm sure Walden is going to go back and say, oh, there are seven he over probably here. probably knows. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but, but, I mean, Walden is, we call him our walking encyclopedia of old-time radio. But um, in, in terms of the focus, it, it 
you really tightened it up, and you did an extraordinary amount of research for this. Tell me about the the emphasis and being able to stay on track. I mean, the tendency over how many years with Subaru McGee and Molly on, um, my tendency would be to say, well, you know, this is almost related. I think I'll talk about this as well. You really stayed focused on I, this. I've almost had to, given that you know the amount of time I had to devote to it and the resources I had at hand. Uh, I will tell you, and I'll give give uh, uh, Claire Schultz a plug because he certainly deserves one. Uh, his book, Fibber McGee and Molly, on the air, 1935 mm-hmm. to 59. Certainly, I couldn't have done the book without his work. Couldn't have done it without Charles Stump and, and uh, Tom Price because they're just they are encyclopedias of, on this subject. So I pretty much had to, you know, I knew when the war started and when it ended, and and had those resources and just went from there. How long did it take you from beginning? concept to concrete book my wife would say 20 years <laughs> <laughs> i'd say uh from, with your wife. <laughs> from, from serious you know like listening to tapes on the way back and forth to work in the truck and making notes as soon as i got home that sort of thing probably three years but as you know that's not really fair because uh a lot of the, the references that i used i'd been buying and collecting books for years and years and years so uh a lot of the, the resources were already in the house mm-hmm so you didn't start from scratch on the research information, but putting it together is a work of art. I mean, it is just, I'll tell you about that in just a minute. I can say, I want to tell you why I love this book. In your background, you were, according to the information in the book, and I'm going from my memory here because I went from page to page to page, mm-hmm. you were very young. You were just three years old when Pearl Harbor was attacked. Is That's that correct? correct. That's correct. And I, I confess that while we, everyone in the, in the households, listen to Fibber McGee and Molly at that age, uh, n- none of this made a great deal of sense to me, but uh, it didn't take very long uh, because, uh, you know, I started to catch on to some of the humor, and, uh-huh. uh, and you certainly didn't, you didn't have to be very old to catch on to what they were trying to do, and that was to help the war effort. How old were you when you really began to be aware of what was going on around you in terms of the war years and tap into those radio shows with the messages? Well, I, there's, there's a little section, a small section in the book that probably describes the way most kids my age then uh, operated, and that was to listen to things like uh, Superman and Tom mm-hmm. Hicks and, and uh, Don Winslow of the Navy and that sort of thing. And uh, that was our, our young people's introduction to you know, what was going on in the world. Uh, I, I certainly didn't understand that Fred McGee and Molly were uh, giving us a patriotic message during the war, I don't think, but it wasn't not very long thereafter till I realized that. What is your earliest recollection of wartime messages coming through on the radio? Mm. I, I would have to go back to those, those children's shows, I think, uh, there were the, children shows. That's interesting. Yeah, they weren't they weren't totally dedicated to it. But even uh, Tom X was uh, found fighting uh, the Nazis at one point. I mean, it's kind of a, straight, a stretch for a cowboy star to be fighting Nazis, but he was. And there were other other programs, Sky King, and some of the others that were definitely involved in the war effort. So all of us kids knew we should be too. And I, that was those were the first things. But I, I think probably subliminally. Uh, while Phil McGee and Molly were talking about rationing, which I knew about rationing, and we're talking about saving gasoline, and I knew about saving gasoline, uh, that probably uh, deep down I understood what they were what they were up to. You did. 
Yeah, I think so. That's really interesting. Now, you've got a message in the title of the book, How They Won the War, How Fibber McGee and Molly Won World War II. And that is a very powerful commentary on the show. Talk to me about that for a minute. Well, first I have to give credit to uh, an author named Thomas Cahill, who wrote a book, a very successful book, called How the Irish Saved Civilization. And I frankly stole the idea for the title from from uh, his his book. Very uh-huh. serious historical book, and very good one, I might add, and recommend it to you. And um, I don't know, it just it came to me. I tried that one out on my wife. She's my harshest critic, and she thought that worked okay, so I knew that was going to be all right. It's still a powerful commentary. I think so. I, I, I because I think it's true. Uh, they won some of it back here. There's that's for sure. I want to talk about that in comparison to some of the other shows that had wartime messages and wartime shows. But for now, I want to remind listeners that the phone lines are open if you can uh, give us a call with a comment for Mickey Smith, for um, a question about the show, the characters, themes, messages, himself, just anything at all. We're at 714-545-2071. And I hope somebody's going to give us a call. Either that or we really talked very well over the last couple of weeks with the shows we've been running. Overall, what role or roles did radio play during the war? Well, I think uh, number one was information. It was absolutely essential, uh, I think, for the people at home to to know what was necessary, what needed to be done. Uh, But it was very tough. uh, I say this in the book because so many other people have said it as well. It was very tough to uh, tell what needed to be done without being uh, providing too much negative information, like ba- uh, bad results in a battle, or uh, gee, we're really running out of gasoline right now. Uh, and I think that radio tried to wa- walk a kind of a tightrope uh, of enthusiasm, like we can get this done without saying everything's all right. And I think they did a phenomenal job. That's a little bit more than what I was expecting you to say. I thought you would um, identify some gap areas that radio in general had, and you're giving them pretty high marks. Well, I think in general, yes. Now, there, there's, there's a considerable body of criticism of, of uh, kinds of programs who more or less ignored what was going on or just gave uh, an odd you know, sentence or two here or there and who didn't really spend much time on it. And then that, I think, is one of the things that really set McGee and Molly apart. They would do an entire show. One of my favorites is uh, about sugar rationing when Fibber invented uh, a coffee cup with a rough bottom on it, so people thought they were stirring up sugar when, <laughs> in fact, there was no sugar in it at all. Uh, Mr. Whistle thought it was delicious. <laughs> yeah, well, one of them wanted, wanted, didn't want that much sugar, actually, but uh, but they would do a whole show, or if they didn't do a whole show, then they, they'd devote the middle commercial, or they'd devote a very special uh, end-of-the-show message about it, and uh, I don't think anybody was doing that, certainly not to the extent that they were doing it. They talked about some pretty serious issues, um, from rationing to black market and civil defense and scrap drives and keeping up morale. I mean, they tackled everything. They tackled virtually everything during the course of the war. One of the questions I have on the list relates to that, that Don Quinn and Phil Leslie primarily, those were the two who um, pretty much mm-hmm. did all of the script writing, they managed to take really serious national issues, the war subjects, the monumental changes in Americans' lives. I mean, people in America did not 
understand the concept of rationing until this came in. No. Um, how did they manage to weave all of those dire circumstances into a show with a message without jeopardizing the comedy? Well, the very simple answer is Don Quinn was a genius. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. Uh, if, if one reads, reads the way he wrote, this was a man who absolutely loved words, uh, had an, an incredible sense of humor, and Phil Leslie uh, came in and, and fit right in with him. He was apparently a very wonderful man. I did speak with him one time. But Don Quinn, without question, uh, as good as Fibber and Molly or the Jordans were at delivering the lines, uh, they wouldn't have, wouldn't have been able to do that if he hadn't been the writer that he was. And he somehow made it work. Um, and, he, and he found strange ways to do it. I'm going to give another example now. Uh, you know, the, the uh, black maid was named Beulah. Mm -hmm. he, he had Beulah deliver a, a small dissertation on inflation one night. Now, what an odd place for that to come from, but she did it beautifully mm -hmm. and explained to anybody who was listening what, it, what, it, what inflation would mean and why it would be bad and explained it to Fibber. Of course, of course Fibber never understood anything like that until somebody got him straightened out. But, uh, mm. Quinn was just a, a genius at making uh, humor uh, get a message across about a very serious subject. And we have a caller, Jim, from Pittsburgh, California. Hello, Jim. Hello, Walden. Hello, uh, Professor. Vicki, yes. Uh, I have two questions for you. First of all, the very first war program they did, Tuesday, December 9th, 1941, I can get it for you wholesale. <laughs> oh, yes, I remember it. The classic show, of course, Molly's famous line about the globe and Japan and the way the audience reacted. Can you tell me anything about the writing of that show? I guess the original buying those Christmas gifts was the original idea of the script before Pearl Harbor was attacked. Were those, a lot of those things just added suddenly and Molly's line and all of that? It had to, it had to be. Uh, my, I guess my biggest regret in, in putting this book together is I never got a chance to talk with uh, Don Quinn at all and only talk with Phil Leslie when I was doing the other book. So I didn't know I was going to do this one at the time. They had to be added at the last minute, but... Uh, they were writing these uh, these uh, shows uh, literally on a, a four-day four turnaround, so th they clearly had to throw those in at the last minute. Well, I know I got a great reaction from the audience. Oh, sure, immediately, and they, they sang a patriotic song at the end. So it, it, I can only imagine what it must have been like to put on a live radio show under their, those circumstances. And I heard a story yeah. once, uh, two, two more questions. When, one, I heard a story once, I don't know if it's an urban legend or not, that President Roosevelt, you know, he did his fireside chat mm -hmm. at 10 p.m. after Fibber McGee. Right. I had heard somewhere that he original that the original address was scheduled for 9:30, and that President Roosevelt knew how popular Fibber McGee and Molly was, and he decided to move it up to 10 so it wouldn't be preempted. Do you know anything about that? I, a little bit. There's a story in uh, an article, a story in Nostalgia Digest, a few years back uh, that was you know, kindly supplied to me, and it, that same uh, tale is related in there as fact, and I have no reason to doubt it. I don't recall who the author was or whether it was an editorial piece, but uh, I quote that in the book, that, that uh, <laughs> he knew how to, how to uh, get an audience for sure, <laughs> and uh, apparently he did do that. My other question is more related to your earlier book. Uh, you had mentioned the one about, far, about medicine on radio. Is that like the... 
drug companies that sponsored shows, or is it about doctors and medical shows that were portrayed on radio, or what exactly? They, your 1989 book. Yeah, it's all of those things, and uh, because of my background, and an awful lot of pharmacy in, in there as well, uh, there were a surprising number of, of shows that had pharmacists on them. I mentioned Richard Peavy on Gildersleeve, and uh, one of my favorite commercials was at the end of Phil Harris and Alice Faye, which uh, Tracy talked about, the Rexall family druggist would come on at the end of the show, and he sounded like everybody's uncle. Uh, did a terrific job. I don't know who, who played the part, but uh, the book is about the shows uh, with, with some little excerpts from them, from uh, about the advertisers and about some of the medical shows like uh, Dr. Kildare and uh, that kind of thing. Anyway, I wish you lots of luck with your book, and I hope it is a great success for you. I appreciate it. I appreciate you calling in. Thank you, Alden. Thank you, Jim. Sure thing. And um, just a little background on uh, Don Quinn's writing style. Um, I'm a good friend with Catherine Crosby. And she would tell me one time her one of her very best friends when she moved to Hollywood was Don Quinn's daughter. Mm-hmm. So she roomed in, at their house. Uh-huh. And generally Don Quinn's writing style, he was a night owl. Yep. And what he liked to do is play Scrabble. Oh, really? Yes. And so mainly the, game, the family get together to play games. And then when it got pretty close to writing time, he would crash and just do an all-nighter and write it one night. That's the way I understand it, and, and uh, smoking and drinking coffee the whole time. Probably true, yeah. It's, it's interesting. My wife and I play Scrabble at, at supper time every night, <laughs> but I'm no Don Quinn, believe me. <laughs> but he obviously was in love with the English language, no question about it. And if you followed his career, you know he went on to the, the Halls of Ivy. Which is, I think, a classic show. And has such... I, don't, I don't know much about it. I, I read about it, but I don't think I ever heard it. Well, I think I, I would highly recommend whenever you got whenever you get done writing your next book after your 50th wedding, sit down and listen to the 80 episode. It is... It's like Fibber McGee and Molly, but it's based upon a college, education, a college campus. Yeah, I, I really do want to do that. Yeah, yeah. Great. Go ahead, Patricia. It's a great show. Mm-hmm. I have a question about pharmacy and medicine on the air. Okay. Who's the publisher, please? It was Scarecrow Press, which at that time was a uh, pretty reputable publication. Now, they've since been taken over two or three acquisitions. And I'm I'm trying to. Uh, in fact, I have had a call in for about a year and a half, about a year, to whoever is the corporate owner now, uh, because they had sent me, you know, they remaindered it and uh, uh, gave me the copyrights back. But I can't find my letters saying I still have the copyright, and they're supposed uh, to be trying to find that yeah. in the archive. I, I believe Tim Millen, because I remember they reissued the big broadcast. Um, they did several books on old time radio at one time. But I'm trying. If you're thinking, Mickey, I'm trying to think who's taking them over at the moment. I can't think of it right off the bat. Yeah, I, I um, if 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 you go on the web and look up Scarecrow Press, you'll you'll eventually find your way to to who the owners yeah. are now. Yeah. Sounds like it's like following a breadcrumb trail here. It's pretty close. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty close. Wow. So it, the, is... the book didn't do badly. It's just that that Scarecrow Press had no idea about the old time radio people. No. And didn't know how to market to them, and uh, consequently, it you know it. Did a little bit, a few hundred copies, but uh, never, never, never really went anywhere. Boy, that that is really a shame. And of course, if they remaindered it, and with Scarecrow being gobbled up fourteen different times here, the book is not available commercially. Is that correct? No, although a friend of mine recently was able to find one on eBay or one of those places at a reasonable price. But I don't uh-huh. know how he did it because I'm computer illiterate. You must you might as well know that. I don't even have a computer. I have a, a web TV, and that's just and I can find some stuff, but not, not too much. 
How in the world did you create a manuscript without a computer? Well, you know, people ask me that all the time, and I have uh, a big stack of yellow legal pads and some brown fountain pens, and it's worked for me on every book I've ever had anything to do with, but I've also had some very wonderful people who are quite willing to type for me. I like that idea. Um, you're talking to a person who is smiling at the yellow legal pad. I I just miss them so much. It's the way I started. I, could, I couldn't have lived without them, I can assure you. Oh. And now, of course, unless it's on a computer and it goes from computer to computer, I don't make a living. So I have to surrender my yellow pads. But, oh, my goodness, it's so nice to talk with someone who appreciates them and knows, oh, <laughs> knows the merits. Absolutely. Uh, one, of the, one of the things I might mention, it hasn't come up, and maybe it's on your list, but uh, the, the music on the, on the show was important as well. And there's, a, there's a listing in the book of the, uh, they didn't do just patriotic songs, that's for sure, that would have been boring, but uh, they did do a number of them, and they did them on a more or less regular basis so that uh, the listener would, would get a message through the music as well from Billy Mills and his group. They also had some of the strangest songs I ever heard of and never heard of again after they'd sung them one time. <laughs> Um, I have to agree. There were some, even non-war-related things. Oh, absolutely. There was one off the wall. There were, I don't know where they got those things. I mean, it must have been sent in by listeners or something like that. <laughs> oh, yeah, I can't. Yeah, well, uh, they just wrote them up, and uh, who knows? You know, make a few dollars. Uh, if you think about it, in the early part, they would open up the song while you know, under playing the commercial with a patriotic song for a yeah. while. That's, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Tell me about your conversation with Phil Leslie. Well, I was working on the pharmacy and medicine on the yearbook at that time, and uh, I did. I, I don't remember how I got his name. I think it, it was. Uh, I, I do know how I got his name. I think his daughter wrote an article about her father in a magazine called Reminisce, and I did a little homework and, and got him on the phone. He, it turns out he's from St. Louis, and my wife and I both grew up in Missouri. And I found him just one of the most charming gentlemen I've ever talked with on the phone. But all I was asking at that point, I was trying to do research on Kramer's Drugstore. And uh, he, he told me the truth, as it turns out, but he wasn't sure it was correct. And that was that Don Quinn had known a, known a pharmacist named Kramer up in Michigan, and that's where the name Kramer's Drugstore had come from. And as I know you've seen pictures of the real Kramer's Drugstore in the book, and I talked with his grandson in preparation for this book. But Phil Leslie was just, just a wonderful man. He he was so happy to have been in the business and, and just so, so charming. I, I wish I had had some idea I was going to do this other book, and I would have been calling him all the time. But, he's, of course, he's deceased now. Yeah, opportunities. Yeah. Um, they, they just don't make themselves known um, until sometimes it's too late. I tried to, to, uh, find, to locate uh, the daughter who'd written the article during mm -hmm. the course of this preparation, but I never was able to, to find, uh, find out where she was because I thought perhaps I could get some insights from the family. But uh, I, could, I couldn't locate him in any way on the web, and so I didn't get anything more about him. Wow, that that is really sad. Uh, with a a little bit of good fortune, she might be listening tonight, and will contact you. That would be great if she would. I'd still she like can to contact know. you through Bear Manor Media. Yeah, or uh, my, you you have my phone number and my uh, um, address. Don't give it out. Don't give it out over the air. Okay. <laughs> I send I send you a flyer with it which has it on. Bear Manor, Bear Manor Media knows it, and and uh, the and lady. And Walden has it. Yeah, sure. 
So if anyone is out there and wants to get in touch with Mickey Smith, please send an email to Walden, and he will make sure Mickey gets the uh, the information in the, the yeah, uh, email. That would be great. I might, I might want to say as well, uh, this book is a cover story in uh, Radiogram this, this month, and uh, the editor mistakenly put in that signed copies were available for me. They're not. I, I would sign somebody's copy if they sent it to me, but if they want to buy a book, they need to go to Bear Manor. I don't have any, any to send <laughs> oh them. He's going to make a correction on that next time around. Oh, I hope so. Accused you of having a garage Not, not that I've had a mailbox full of, of, uh, of requests, but nevertheless. Did you have any feedback at all from that? From uh, the article? On what? From the article, did you get anything? Yeah, I've had a couple, couple of phone calls from, uh, you know, Dave Siegel, I'm sure. Yes. Uh, he and I are, are big. in fact, I owe him a great deal about this book because uh, I got got hold of him and, and we became phone buddies uh, several several years ago. And he was just a cheerleader and a, a friend. He, he loaned me a lot of, lot of, of uh, programs of his own. And uh, the, the first feedback I had on Radiogram was him calling, saying, I don't know who your public relations man is, but I want to hire him right away. <laughs> so that was just a very lucky break. That's cute. Just a reminder, we are talking with Mickey Smith, who is the author of the newest, and boy, it's a dynamite book, uh, the newest book about Fibber McGee and Molly. It is called How Fibber McGee and Molly Won the War. Uh, or one World War Two. It's, it's like Fibber, the big one. He's in World War One. The, the big one. That's right. The big one. Archie Archie Bunker was the big one with World War Two. Yeah. Um, but how Fibber McGee and Molly won World War Two, and it is published by Bear Manor Media. Now Bear Manor Media is uh, at bearmanormedia.com, and you can check out the book there. I don't mean check out like a library. I mean check it out as in look at it and, and check out the information. And you can order the book by mail through Bear Manor Media, which is a great way to get the book. Or it will also provide a link directly to Amazon.com where you can buy the book. So that's where we are right now. Um, I, might, I might add something as yeah. well that's in, in the development process. I mentioned Dave Siegel, and he and Jack French are putting uh, some kind of an article together uh, uh, that uh, covers the Stump, uh, Tom Price book, Heavenly Days, and uh -huh. Claire Schultz's book, and my book, and uh, that's supposed to be coming out in the April issue of, I think it's called Radio Recall? Correct, yeah, that's Jack French okay. publication. Okay, well, that's yeah, that's supposed to come out in the April issue, so. And April's a big month, because that's when February McGee and Molly turned 75 years old. Oh, really? Well, that's a doubly important time, for yeah. sure. Yeah, Patricia and I are planning to devote over 12 hours that day live well, and have several of the cast members of the show live with us throughout oh, the day. that'd be wonderful. That'd so, be wonderful. There were some wonderful people on that show. No and doubt about it. Yeah. I, I, I immediately think of Gail Garden because he, he went on to such big things, but so many of them, uh, so many of the other ones did as well. You bet. Gail Gordon was fabulous. Yes, he, absolutely. He lent so much to that show. Yeah. And of course, with several several great voices on there, and uh, he he had so many different roles. He didn't eclipse anybody either. And uh, uh, Dick Legrand was on the show for a while, and I mention him only because he was Peavy on Gildersleeve. Mm-hmm. 
So he was one of my favorite people for that reason. Walden stumped me last week. What did Walden tell him the question that you asked me, please? Well, we had out there for the listeners and uh, what, every week. Forgive me. I, I we we have a weekly trivia segment, and what I said, okay. Uh, Rich Legrand was Mr. Peavy, of course, in a great girl story. What sh- what role did he have on Faber McGee and Molly? And so it took a little while, but he uh, went absolutely blank. All right, I'll give you one. Oh, uh, what role did he have on Tom Mix? Ah, let me think. I never think he was out of Chicago. Let me think about that. I'll tell you. All right, tell me. Uh, he was Sheriff Mike Shaw. And I know Leo Kirk. He must have been before Leo Curry. Uh, so I, and I'm I'm basing that all on on printed matters. But, uh, yeah. Uh, it's that's in one of the one of the one of the books, huh? Yeah, because Leo Curry, I know, was the best known of playing that role on the show. That's well, very good. That, that may be an error, so don't yeah. quote me. No. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you do your own research. However, it sounds great. Sure, it sounds great. <laughs> it's it's good for a start. You give us all of the seeds and we'll grow the plants over here. Uh, well, then, would you um, just do a thumbnail on Radio Recall, please? Sure. Uh, Jack French is... Sure. Jack French, is, in, my, in my opinion, puts out the best newsletter in the hobby. Um, Jack is a retired FBI agent. Uh, written a terrific book on lady detectives, private eyelashes, and this is part of the Metro Area Old Time Radio Club based in the Washington, D.C. area. And the wonderful thing about it, everybody, uh, they have a web present, and occasionally they will post uh, feature articles up on their website. And so if you Google the Metro Area Old Time Radio Club, You'll come across his website, and Jack French uh, does the research, and he has a lot of fine people, uh, Jim Cox, Martin Graham, uh, do articles, and he does original research on his own. And of the old-time radio newsletter, in my opinion, in the hobby, it's the most uh, research-based of, of the articles. And I, I highly recommend, and those of you who are interested, they, they give you a discount if you're out of the area. For membership, like if you live in Mississippi or something. Correct. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Anything, uh, anything that you get, don't get a chance to show up to the monthly meeting. So that is radio recall. All right. Yeah, that's, I, I had only learned about that. I've seen Jack French's name for years and years, but I had no idea about this until the last couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah. Jack, Jack's a good guy. My impression is there are an awful lot of good guys there, and I don't know any of them really personally. Everybody's pretty much a of a phone contact because I've never been to any of the conventions, uh, but I have had so much enjoyment out of out of old time radio. That, sure. Uh, and and the kind of people who like you, uh, both of you, who are spending this much time on it and making uh, the rest of us uh, have so much fun. Let me ask you a question. In the 1943 season, hmm. I seem to remember at the tail end or somewhere, maybe I'm wrong, that. The Johnson Wax dedicated at least one show a month to the war effort. Am I right or wrong? That's, that's correct. Yeah, uh, that came came out of uh, Johnson's uh, office. Actually, mm. I've never been able to quite under quite nail down who made the decision, but my best guess is it was Mr. Johnson himself. And uh, in fact, Claire Schultz says that in in his book that it was one a month, but it was more than that. I mean, it happened to be one, at least one theme show a month. But uh, they had something on virtually every program uh, about the war effort. If not an ending uh, editorial, then a middle commercial or something like that. Or two or three comments, you know, 
funny funny mentions like uh, as reliable as Japanese newspaper or that kind of thing. <laughs> there was one I copied down last week. Uh, Molly was complaining about a draft in the house, and it was as as big as oh gosh, it had something to do with the draft of a man with seven children. That yeah, much of it, yeah. It, it I don't remember exactly how it went, but you're absolutely right. Yes, yeah. it, it was priceless. And I'm, periodically I'll say, oh, I've got to write that one down. You're right. Don Quinn was just a master of words. Yes, and he was. sometimes I just have to write them down. And I do. I've got this file gobbled up <laughs> with little words and bits and pieces of Fibber McGee. I, I, wish, I wish somebody would, would just collect all the similes, just those things, you know, as dull as it. Ten cent chisel, oh. all of those things. It would tell you, it would make a book. It it absolutely would. I mean, there were so many in each show, and they never got old. No, it it never got old listening to them. Sometimes you can listen to a speaker or any kind of a show, any kind of a program, anything with the spoken word, and you'll hear similes come mm -hmm. up, and eventually you get to the point where you say. I don't want any more of these. They're not funny anymore. That mm -hmm. never happens with Fibber McGee and Molly. Why? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And, and, if, and if they didn't work, and, and the audience was very kind enough to tell them that they didn't work, then they'd make fun of themselves. So that, you know, it still was wonderful. And that, that was another thing that, that I, I wanted strongly to emphasize is that a big player in the program was the audience. They, they knew whether the thing was working the minute, the minute that the words came out of their mouth. They weren't the only program with live audience, that's for sure, but they played to that live audience very, very well. Mm -hmm. I think part of the reason why, by 1941, they were almost the top show on the air. Right, they were, and, and if uh, you look at the Hooper ratings during the, the war years, they were one, two, or three every year. Yeah, very sensitive to the audience that way. I, I never uh, haven't been able to determine uh, why Johnson's Wax finally dropped them. They sponsored them for 15 years. Uh, I'm sure television had something, maybe a lot, to do with it. But uh, they, they ended, you know, friendly. There wasn't any enmity am, among them. And they immediately picked up Pet Milk, I think, right after that. Pet Milk and the third one, which was our trivia question last week, name one of the three. And, of course, it was Reynolds Aluminum. That would have been, yeah. It was uh, the following uh, one. Arlo Wilcox didn't get a nickname for that one, I don't think. No, it's hard to say, hey, aluminum -y. Yeah, right. Could not, could Milky not and waxy worked out just fine. But, that uh, one worked out. You know, can't do much with that. Um, single syllable with a Y on the end, that'll work, but not yeah. aluminum. Can't make yeah. aluminum work. Um, this, I want to tell you, see, now it's my turn. I want to tell you why I love this book. All right. I would love to hear that. I've only got a half a page here. <laughs> and right. I thought, well, you better stop writing now because this isn't your interview. <laughs> it's, it's with Mickey. But I, I identified it as a quadruple play, and I, I think I'm probably cheating you there. It's probably a sextuplet play. But you've got a wonderful roundup, uh, uh, an overview of Fibber McGee and Molly as a show, a roundup of the characters, the writers, the performers, the personalities. Just a, a, a good, round picture of who everyone was, how the show came together. Then you come up with a collection of synopses of war-related shows, which are excellent. I mean, the, there is just no way you could get to the end of a single page and say, I don't know enough about that show. You've done a masterful job of taking an entire half-hour show and condensing it into a readable format. It, it's just wonderful. 
then you put in some personal accounts from people who actually lived through the experiences that many of these war years shows address, which from my perspective is a gift. Anytime I see firsthand experiences or recordings of firsthand experiences, it adds a richness that just is not there when you hear someone else repeating it. But then you went even further and gave us actual history, the, the history of what was happening at that time when some of these shows were broadcast. And that was not for every show, but at particular intervals where there were really highly significant things happening during the war, you took the time to put together this research information for us. Now, the really fun part is that you knit it together. It is all woven in a seamless production, and it's just fun to read. I mean, it's extremely well-written. There are some books that are just painful to get through. There's lots of good stuff, but you know, it just hurts to have to keep on reading. Not this one. I just kept on reading, and it is wonderful. So well, you've got my gold stars all over the place. Thank you very much. Thank you. I always like getting gold stars. I want to uh, mention something because it, it, I think, could get lost in, in the reading. It's probably, for most people, the driest chapter, but there's an extraordinary uh, author in the chapter on the broadcast. Interesting. His name is Sherman Dreyer, D-R-E-Y-E-R, mm -hmm. and he's referenced. His book is referenced in, in the uh, bibliography. The reason I bring it up is he wrote an incredible uh, uh, list of things radio, the broadcast industry should be doing, and he wrote it in 1942, and he, you know, he only had six months of war to, to work with, and it was just in, incredibly incisive. And uh, one of the things I tried to say, to say with just a line here or there was that I'm sure that, that uh, Don Quinn hadn't read his book, but he might as well have because he was doing all the things this guy said to do and, and doing them on his own. This, this is an, I don't know, I, I had a, kept the interlibrary loan people very busy uh, finding some of these out-of-print books, but that, that one was just an unbelievable piece of work. Where did you find it? I don't know. What, uh, some other library. So, uh, we had, had the facility at the university to uh, borrow books from other uh, university libraries, an uh -huh. inter interlibrary loan thing. Well, then, is Sherman Dreyer a name that goes ding for you? No, that's, that's a new one on me. That's a new one? Yeah. Where did this man come from, and how did he develop this attitude and this interest and this sense of ethics I don't and know. operation? I don't know, unfortunately. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I, I, or at least I don't remember. Uh, he, he had in a, in a responsible position. in. The, he wasn't a government official. But he was, uh, I guess I would call it, a, a very authoritative critic on the, on the broadcast industry. And, and the things that he put in, on paper, and which I quote uh, unashamedly and widely, uh, were so good and so early in what was going on that he, you know, he was just a prophet in his own time. It's amazing. I, the, his refer the reference to his book is, is in the bibliography. Mm-hmm. I, I still have bits and pieces where I have to go back and look again. I forgot to mention that you've got some uh, photographs in there, some pictures. Oh, you have my picture. You have my picture in my gas mask. Did you see that? <laughs> Pretty impressive, <laughs> right? Right in, the, right in the front, and there you are with, um, with your dad as well and your mom and dad. Yeah, and my wife and her father as well. The, uh -huh. the, the uh, outfit I had on was my uncle's. He, he flew a B-24 during the war, and uh, he brought home his gloves and everything, and they dressed me up like that all the time. Did you did you play with that equipment? As did I what? Did you play with that equipment that? No, he we out? didn't. Not, that was uh, just for photo photographs. 
Uh, we played we played army all the time, of course, and uh, made our own guns and did all that kind of stuff. Dug our own foxholes, uh, uh, too much to the chagrin of my grandparents because they didn't like those holes in their yard. <laughs> Especially but you never you never knew when the Japanese or the Germans were coming after you, so you had to be ready. You know? you know, that's really interesting. Tell me about that. Tell me about being a kid growing up in an era that actually taught you that this is an everyday threat. Well, um, there's been a lot written about, first of all, about the difference between the fear of the Japanese and the and the Germans. And mm -hmm. uh, the, my my whole side of my family was German heritage. Uh, but we knew that the Nazis were bad, and somehow we distinguished, I think, reasonably well between the Germans with the big G and the Nazis being the really bad Germans. Mm -hmm. The Japanese were just all bad. You just knew that because John Wayne didn't like them, <laughs> and if John Wayne didn't like them, they couldn't have been any good. And right. they looked and they looked different. And I I know these are not politically correct things to say, and they're not. But that's how it was then. They're you, historically accurate. Oh. As as you as you went to. Movie, war movies as a child, you went there to cheer the, the, the Americans and to hate the other guys. And they were many of the movies were made that way. Now, there was never, and then I'll go back to the topic at hand, there was never anything really harsh and ugly said about the Japanese or the Germans in a Fibber McGinn's Molly show. I can't think of one untoward thing. A little humor, uh, you know, that kind of stuff, but mm -hmm. never, never the kind of hate that Arch Obler what's proposing in, during those times. Now, the, there were many comments and short jibes. Very many, uh, yeah. For it, example, the, uh, it's, it's a, during a winter snowstorm, it was not fit for man, uh, for, for man nor Hitler or dog nor Hitler. Yeah, one of those, one of those things. Yeah, Hitler mm -hmm. was the, the main butt of the jokes, but, but uh, yeah. they didn't have the market cornered on Hitler jokes anyway. Yeah, right. <laughs> but that was the end. There, there was, that was no it. more. It that was, was it. Taking... No, they didn't go on and on and beat you over the head with it. Yeah. What were you surprised, or were you surprised, at anything as you listened to the tapes and the shows from a different perspective? Well, I guess the biggest surprise I was that uh, was that uh, that they did all the things that I thought they had done. <laughs> And when you start digging in, you, you realize just how extensive this action was and, and how well it was performed uh, and how little was lost in the way of humor. Practically nothing was lost in the way of humor. And they could make that transition at the end where usually Jim would say something serious and then usually Marion got to say the final word. And there was always a, a hook in it of, of humor, uh, uh, some, again, another play on words. And uh, it was just... Uh, you know, he was a genius, and it was again, it was Don Quinn, and and Phil Leslie was very good as well. There's no question about that. But uh, he would been he would have been the first to say that he learned it from from Quinn. He learned well. Very well indeed. How how many shows did you listen to when you were working on this or preparing to work on the book? Oh, a hundred, I guess. How often did you uh, listen? Every every one I could get my hands on from that era, and, and I had many more, of course, but. Uh, I had to limit myself to the, the ones that I, I knew I was going to work on. That, that was the hard part. I, I say that's the hard part. I'm imposing this on you. It would be the hard part for me. Yeah, um, well, I, and of course, I'd written, listened to hundreds before, but not, uh -huh. with, not with this subject matter in mind. I, I tend to look like lightning, summer lightning, with just splitting off into all different sizes and sides. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I'll say, what was I supposed to do? <laughs> <laughs> I understand. I understand. And it, it, it really does require some discipline to... To, to stay with it, and I find find myself laughing 
uh, you know, <laughs> not even something I was going to write down. I just thought it was funny. And on on several occasions, uh, it had nothing to do with the war, but I just had to quote Teeny. She had some of those poems that she wrote, uh-huh. uh, had they were, they were just so hilarious that if the reader, especially the uninformed reader or unfamiliar reader, uh, didn't hear some of that stuff, they'd never appreciate that character. So I, I threw some of that in just for that reason. I, my, I, you know, my major, a major concern of mine uh, was trying to walk again yet another tightrope between telling the OTR fans a whole bunch of stuff they already knew and uh, telling people who were not familiar with this or not very familiar with it what they were dealing with, what this program was like. And it's what you mentioned before, trying to encapsulate it without uh, beating people over the head with it and, again, boring the OTR and to death. Patricia and I always struggle is how can we introduce old-time radio to the, the younger generation? Yeah. And, I mean, hopefully this would be a way to do that, to, A, to teach history, uh, what was World War II like living through it, and this would be a, a better way than just having a uh, teacher just doing a straight narration of it. Mm-hmm. Well, there there are, as I'm sure you know, there are some people who, who are trying to teach uh, old-time radio in university settings. Uh, I, I had an annual Christmas show in my pharmacy class. Every year at Christmas, I would play the, the program where uh, Leroy works at PV's Drugstore. And I have to say, they laughed. They loved, they loved it. It was, you know, the 110 kids, I made them turn the lights off. <laughs> or down so that they had uh-huh. to get it like I did. But they always really enjoyed it, but I don't think any of them left saying, gee, I can't wait to buy me some more of those <laughs> records. Oh. Well, Although I will tell you this, we, I, I've run into old former students occasionally now, fewer and fewer. They're all dying out faster than I am. But I was in a men's room one time about 10 years ago, and uh, the guy at the next stall said, Dr. Smith, how you doing? And I said, oh, I'm doing just fine. How are you? And he said, you know, I'll always remember your class. And I thought, boy, he must really learn something great. He said, yeah, you played that radio program for us. <laughs> That's all he remembered out of four months' worth of class. So. But I was glad he remembered that one anyway. Well, he remembered you. And, yeah. and oh, I don't even want to go to the stall. <laughs> well, you'd, you'd have to know, too, that uh, my physical appearance was a little bit bizarre I, until about... Three months ago, I had an almost ridiculous handlebar mustache throughout my teaching career. Did you really? Yeah, I did. I did. But I've I've gotten cutting it back to uh, manageable size now, but and I my my old pictures don't look anything like I do now. That that is quite acceptable for a college professor. It worked for me because, as I always said, with a generic name like Smith, you got to have something else going for you. <laughs> I mean, maybe now is the time to tell you I grew up with the name Smith. It's my maiden name. Really? Yes, it is. Nothing wrong with the name. There's nothing wrong with the name. It is a bit of a challenge to keep yourself apart from some of the other folks in the world. I mean, there are three of us or four of us in, in my little area alone. I walk into a lab and they want to give me to somebody else. <laughs> well, I, I'll tell you, I'm looking at my wife here who's trying to stay awake. <laughs> I'm in my bedroom, too. Uh, and uh, her first name is Mary, so if you want to talk generic, you really got a generic name there, Mary Smith. It's, it's very hard for her to just get a doctor's appointment. They have to go through with six uh, computer Uh-huh, and, they, and she gets the answer, sure you yeah. are. Um, I have an uncle, John Smith. Oh, boy. I know, the poor guy. Yeah, yeah. that's a toughie. Really well, I didn't get sad. I didn't get saddled with a normal first name anyway. <laughs> no, that's that's good. You you probably aren't bumping into too many Mickeys out there. No, no. Tell me about Fibber McGee 
in relation to other shows. People, the shows like The Great Gildersleeve, The Aldrich Family, they had entire shows devoted to war issues and support for war efforts, bonds or conservation or rationing or what have you. I mean, they, they certainly didn't do it in the numbers that Sarah McGee and Molly did. But even if you put one episode against one episode or side by side, not against, but side by side, Fibber McGee and Molly would be the one you remembered. Absolutely. Absolutely. Why? I think because it was so seamlessly put into the program. It, was, it wasn't awkward. Uh, it didn't sound like it's something we have to do or want to do right now, and then we'll get back to what we're really trying to do, which is make you laugh. They made you laugh about all this stuff, and, and it didn't seem awkward at all. To me, at least, it didn't, and I think that's the general feeling from everybody, is that... Uh, well, the black market episode, which is in many ways my favorite because the issue was so serious, uh, it still it holds up beautifully today because at the very end of the show, as bad as, as uh, Fibber had behaved, uh, he, he finally threw the, the black market meat out the window and even the dog wouldn't eat it. So they just managed to do that kind of stuff, and, and I, nobody else did it. Gildersleeve is one of my favorite shows as well. Uh, in my top five, probably, of comedy shows, but I, I never heard them do anything even close to, to as well as this. Not as well, no. no. Um, entire shows, but again, Fibber McGee and Molly are the ones you would remember. Absolutely, absolutely. What made either Jim and Mary and Jordan or Fibber McGee and Molly as characters, I'm not even sure I can separate the two of them, but what made them so believable that they could motivate people. They absolutely motivated people. Well, I, th I'm, I'm, I think it's because they really loved one another, first of all. Uh, they loved one another and recognized one another's faults, although Molly had few enough of them, and Fibber had enough for 10 people. Uh, <laughs> but uh, she, she obviously really cared about the man. She kept him straight. And as somebody's written, I, I did not, but somebody says, everybody knows somebody like Fibber McGee. It may be a, a dumb uncle or somebody like that, but they were just, just that believable. And I would say from, from my own personal experience, everybody knows a wife who's long-suffering and has her feet on the ground and keeps the husband from acting like an absolute complete fool day after day. And I think that was part of it. They, they had foibles, and that was good. He did, anyway. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I guess Molly, in a way, probably did. I don't know what they are, though. I haven't come across any. And that's, it's kind of difficult to pull off a character who really does not have any significant well, roles. Her, her knowledge of the language wasn't all that great. She made some mistakes in, in uh, grammar and in uh, word meanings. But a lot of times uh, that, that was uh, done on purpose. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, even Mrs. Uppington and, you know, the uppity people, they all respected Molly, even though they had right. nothing but disdain for Fibber. Would you like a slug of tea? There you go. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, there, was, Perfect. There, was, there was a baseness, yeah. uh, and, and not in a negative way, but there was something that almost everyone could feel good about. Mm -hmm. hmm. They were they were remarkable people. Indeed. Indeed. And, and that's the reason they had such a long run, not just in that show, but in uh, when they started with Smack Out and all the other things that, uh, that got them where they, where they ended up. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you mentioned Black Market Meat. That was one of the shows we played last week. Uh -huh. And it it's, as with the other ones, it was as good the 48th time as it was the 47th time. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's in my, certainly in my top five. I think the sugar one is totally unbelievable because physically that would never work. To scrape a bottle of, 
uh, or the bottom of a, of a cup of cu- cup, and make people believe there was sugar in it. But somehow you believed it for that show, at least for that 30 minutes. It, it made it work. Yep. And Fibber, and his ideas, once in a while he came through with a good one. <laughs> Every now and then he did, yeah. It weren't possible, he yeah. came through with a good one. Every now and then. When, what are the top three things you learned that you didn't know when you first started this project? What, what did you learn along the way? Well, I learned about Don Quinn. I'd, I'd never uh, really been exposed to him. I've seen very little, uh, until I started doing some research, I'd seen very little comment about him in print. That may be because I have not been as deeply involved in uh, old-time radio as, as I should have been. But uh, discovering his, and, and recognizing and appreciating his genius would be one one part of the, of, uh, the discovery. I think the second thing was just how important was the contribution of the Johnson's Wax people. Uh, to my knowledge, there wasn't another sponsor out there uh, who contributed as much uh, to the war effort through a program that they were sponsoring as they did. And I feel strongly about them. I've, I haven't, I haven't even talked to them. <laughs> I didn't talk to them before, and I haven't talked to them since. They have a copy of the book. The only thing I did do was was write up there and and ask if there was anyone who could give some insight into the question that was asked before: is uh, who you know how did how did they decide to devote one program a month? And nobody either knew or could remember or cared to tell me. I mean, they were nice enough, but uh, mm-hmm. there were no records of it. Of it. And uh, so their role and, and the uh, ability, the willingness to contribute the way they did would be the second biggest thing I learned. Um, and then I guess the, well, I, I think I knew innately uh, about the interaction of, of all the players, but um, I, I think that I had, because I listened so often and so carefully, uh, the, the uh Enunciation, the intonation, the emphasis, and the ways they, that uh, Fibber and Molly, or the Jordans, delivered those lines was, to me, a major uh, discovery. Don Quinn wouldn't have been Don Quinn without the Jordans. The Jordans couldn't possibly have been <laughs> Fibber McGee and Molly without him. And for at least that period of time, uh, none of them would have been as popular if, if they hadn't had the contribution that they had from their sponsors. So it really was a. a symbiotic relationship among those three parties anyway. Hmm. I was just about to say symbiosis is not one of my favorite words because it's been overused so much. Well, I had to, do it. This is, this I had is, to do it because I'm a professor. You know, well, I, have to throw one I, I, down was, I was going to use it myself. This okay. is perfect. This, this is what the word symbiosis was made for. Yeah, exactly. Wow. What did you expect me to ask tonight that I haven't? Uh, you pretty much ask what I expected, which is how in the world did you get a pharmacy professor and end up writing a book like this? I mean, that's a, the most logical question. Uh, now, I guess the only other question I would uh, have expected you to ask is uh, how many copies do you think I should buy for my friends and relatives? How many copies do you think I should buy for my friends and relatives? Yeah, right. I'm, making, I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. The, the answer is all of them. <laughs> The fact is, if I was ever going to make any, in spite of the number of books, uh, none of them has ever done anything like uh, the two most famous authors in this hometown. I live in Oxford, Mississippi, by the way. I don't think I told you that. No, you didn't. But it's the home of William Faulkner, as I think most everybody knows. But uh, it's also, it was the farmer home of John Grisham, reasonably a successful writer in, in his own right. Reasonably. <laughs> yeah. he's, he's moved on to Virginia now, but uh, he, he was here in, in uh in uh, law school, got his law degree here at the university and wrote his first, first book, I'm sure on a square, because if you read A Time to Kill, 
So you, you might be sitting on the on his, at his desk looking out the front window. It's that graphic about this part of the country. Mm-hmm. Can I uh, may I digress for a minute? Because there's sure. an interesting story about John John Grisham. Uh, he was he was our commencement speaker one year. Uh, not early in his career, but he was already quite famous. Our chancellor then, and recently retired chancellor, is an attorney himself, and was teaching at the law school when John Grisham was in the law school. And Grisham tells the story that um, he did his finally essay exam before Christmas, and he was doing fine till the last question, and he really just kind of gave up. And after Christmas, he came back and asked the uh, the chancellor, who was then just his professor, said, "How'd I do on a test?" And he said, "Well." I'll tell you what, I, it went pretty well to the last question, but uh, there wasn't any law in that, but I do think you have a flair for fiction. <laughs> <laughs> he said I call him every Christmas and, and remind him of that story. <laughs> that's a good story. I, I think that's a real good story, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for the departure. One more time, and I do have another question for you, Rob, Okay. but it's, it's a little bit apart from the book. Uh, I just want to remind people that... The book is How Fibber McGee and Molly Won World War II, and Mickey Smith is the author. He just convinced us that they really did win World War II. And and I have to say, after reading what is in this book and your thoughts and other people's thoughts, they really did play a significant role in it. I feel feel strongly that that's true. I really do. And it's almost impossible to miss when you start laying out the information as you have side by side and page after page. And, you know, I wound up saying, you know, they really did have a major role in in what happened in this country and how it supported war efforts. Okay, the book is How Fibber McGee and Molly Won World War II. It's available by mail at bearmannermedia.com. If you go to bearmannermedia.com and in the left-hand column click on this book, it's listed as Fibber McGee in World War II, I believe, or Fibber McGee That's and right. Molly mm-hmm. in World War II. And click on that. It will bring you to a, a roundup of the book, a nice overview of the book. You can buy it from Bear Manor Media directly, or it will give you a link to go to Amazon.com if you want to buy it through the Internet. Um, and, oh, gosh, it, you know, it really is great. If you don't take advantage of this, it's your loss. I'm, I'm just having such a grand time here. Okay, my question is about one of the shows, Changing the Furnace from Oil to Coal. Mm-hmm. And you recall that one? from? It's, it's from October. I, go ahead. What, what, when is it? Uh, October 13, 1942. Okay. And Fibber was changing back to coal from oil because coal, uh, coal was more accessible. Oil was... Um, one of the things that people needed to conserve, and they were using it for the uh, the war troops. So it was the right thing to do to convert over to coal. Right. But he was in his typical way. Well, you know, I'll get to it, and I have to round up, and I need this tool, and I need that tool. And he asked Molly what the forecast was for the next day, the weather forecast. And her reply was, and this is a quote, the paper doesn't tell what the weather's going to be in wartime. It just tells what the weather was yesterday. Right. I'm looking at it as you're speaking. Tell me what that means. Well, somehow the, the uh, concern about espionage and, and spies and everything got a little out of hand sometimes. And... Uh, they, 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 you may have heard they changed the time from to war time. They, they wouldn't say Eastern time or Western time or any of that, and they didn't want to give 
weather forecast for tomorrow because who knew the German bombers might be coming over tomorrow and it would help them, uh, you know, plan their attack on Pittsburgh. So that's what she was saying is we don't get the forecast. What we get is what happened in Pittsburgh yesterday. Does that make any sense to you? Absolutely. I've been popping this around with people for the last several weeks, and I keep saying my the only thing I can come up with is that people were concerned about giving good weather reports and inviting bomb attacks or missions that show up because we're having good weather and the stars are out tonight. Yeah, well, either way, either mm-hmm. way. And then there were the blackouts, of course, which uh, de- descended... Uh, are descended to the ridiculous thing of uh, aircraft war, air, air raid warnings, uh, wardens coming to your door because they thought they could see the dial on your radio from outside. And my wife's nodding because she's listening, you know, like there's a plane at 20,000 feet is going to see your radio dial. <laughs> but I better better safe than sorry. And, and that's what this was about, for sure. Right, right. Would you compare... The era, the, the era of Fibber McGee and Molly, to what we are living in today. Yeah, I, I think we're getting closer to uh, the kind of support for our our troops, our, our our defendants, our boys and girls, than we've been in any time since World War II. I don't think we're nearly there, but uh, and I didn't want to beat that over the head in this book, although I feel very strongly about it. Uh, what we went through with Vietnam, particularly. Uh, and uh, uh, what am I thinking about? Korea uh, was not the kind of thing that Fibber McGee and Molly were doing. And uh, nowadays, I can't imagine any any program spending their time saying how trying trying to make something funny out of Afghanistan or Iraq. So uh, I think the patriotism, for want of a better term, put it in quotes, but uh, the patriotism, the support for the, the, the uh, people in the military is far closer to uh, what it was in World War II than it had been in any time in, in between, and I'm, I'm delighted to see that. What about on the social side? Well, I, you know what, uh, what's his name? Studs Terkel called it the good war. Uh, and it, it sounds like an oxymoron, but we knew, we definitely knew uh, in those days, uh, and this isn't, I'm not making, you know, this isn't original with me, but we knew that there, there were bad guys over there, and they really were being really bad, and we had to go fix it, and fix it for the world. Uh, I think everybody's convinced there are bad guys around, but they're now they're blowing up tra- planes one at a time, or uh, they're doing other things, and it's so hard to get a fix on who the enemy is. Mm-hmm. And I think socially it makes it makes for an awful lot of confusion uh, among people. And it's, it's a very difficult question to answer, succinctly or intelligently, frankly. <laughs> it's, it's an opinion that I'm asking, and uh, that's pretty much what you gave me, your thoughts on what was happening yesterday and what's happening today. Yeah. When, when I said social, I was thinking in terms of Teeny being able to just show up at the door and nobody would ask any questions. Fibber and Molly could go out collecting for the Red Cross and mm-hmm. just knock on a door and somebody was ready with a check or ready with some cash mm-hmm. to donate to the Red Cross. This is not uh, uh, something that we see in mainstream America today. No, no, definitely not. And, and <clears throat> part of that is, I think, and I think this is uh, what, some of what you're getting at is the social environment. But uh, another part of it is you, you don't have to go knock on somebody's door. You just send them an email or in some other way ask them for money for, for whatever purpose mm-hmm. you have. 
and uh, it's just easier. I don't, I don't know if it's any more effective. It probably is not, but uh, it, it's just so much easier than, than walking the neighborhood as they did. As a consequence, uh, you don't know your neighbors as well as you did in those mm-hmm. days. I, I often talk. I I talk about my my beloved St. Louis Cardinals in one paragraph, and they're just because I wanted to throw them in the book. But I can remember, uh, and it, this is I think very social. Nobody had air conditioning in those days, and we we kids would run up and down from one yard to another, and all the screen doors were open, and you didn't miss a play in the world in the ball game because everybody had the same ball game on the radio. <laughs> You could hear it all the way. You could down hear it up and down the street, and but and you know obviously that kind of thing doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. So. Do you think Fibber McGee and Molly lived in neighborhoods where they knew their neighbors and people could just show up and walk in the door? Was that a product of the war, or was that really the way America was, with or without the war? B. That was that was B. At least in small town America, uh, I didn't have any experience with big cities, but I think. Even there, it would be fair to say that, uh, that there were still uh, neighborhoods just like that where they all knew one another, at least, you know, for a block or two or three blocks mm-hmm. around. And there were there were shows on the air. I, I don't have a good example that took place in metropolitan areas, but it, they still had a neighborhood feel. Um, oh, what's the, the uh, life of Riley, I think, probably was in a big city. I don't know that for a fact. But they knew all their neighbors, and I know... Um, Dave Siegel's got that book on uh, Jews in the war, and I'm trying to think of the uh, Molly Goldberg was one. Certainly that wasn't in a small town any place, but she knew every neighbor within shouting distance, and shouting would be the right word. So, yeah, I think it was it was part of part of America in those days. It was Americana. Yep. Interesting. Tell me three shows you would recommend people listen to if they're hearing Fibber, McGee, and Molly for the first time, or if they like Fibber and they really want a special treat. Well, let's see. That's a, that's a, a good question, and I'm glad you asked that, and I thought I was prepared, and I'm, <laughs> I'm not at all. Uh, I still think the black market show is, is it, it, as a uh, feel for what was going on in, the, in, in those uh, days. I think that's really good. Uh, I'll, I'll go to the other end, end of the spectrum because you didn't ask this one. Uh, the ones about when they got the horse, I think, were about the silliest ones they did when they had the horse in the garage for a while. Agreed. So I wouldn't Brilliant. recommend that to anybody. Mm-hmm. Cross uh, off the horse. Cross off the horse. Okay, uh, cross the horse. <laughs> I, li- I like the one of the, where the old-timer hides out, and that's October 27, 1942. Okay. And I really like the one where um, uh, Fibber tries to use his influence to get Fred Nittany's niece into the wax. Got it. Yep. Because that has a tremendous surprise ending on it. And I really recommend that one. Okay. Well, that's those are three great ones. Um, obviously, you think they're great. I just happen to agree that they're okay, great. Okay. Well, then, you're, then you're certainly right. <laughs> Thank you. Did anyone ever tell you you sound like Fred Allen on the phone? No, no one's done that because no one I know knows Fred Allen. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like Fred Allen on the phone. Walden, are you there? Everybody I know is younger than I am, except my yes, she's my she's five days younger too. I started to say except my wife, but for five days a year she's younger than I am. Well, it might not happen in person, but you do sound like Fred Allen on the phone. Well, I know what he sounds like for sure. I'll, I'll, I'll go back and listen. He's he's so easy to listen to, so that's a compliment on top of it. One more time, what should I have asked you that I didn't? I think you've asked very. Uh, 
entertaining questions. You let me ramble all over the place, <laughs> and I appreciate that. Um, I can't think of anything else you might have asked, actually. Uh, many of the many of the things that you might have asked, you answered yourself, and that's not a criticism. Okay. <laughs> you, you said good things that I agreed with completely. So had you asked a question about it, that's exactly what I would have said. So. Oh, not a good thing for an interviewer to do. No, well, you're not doing this as a profession anyway, are you? <laughs> oh, well, um, yeah, I'm, like, I'm normally a good interviewer. I should have known better. <laughs> right. don't take, please don't take it as criticism. I really enjoyed the, the, the chance to talk about this. As you can tell, I'm very enthusiastic about the subject and, and enjoy talking about myself. Well, tell that, us. That's really egotistical. <laughs> If you're not egotistical, you can't be a college professor anyway. So. <laughs> I don't think you can be a good writer unless you have just a, a little bit of... Yeah, there's, there's something to be you know, on that, too. You, you want people to know just a little bit about that. Okay, one more time. This is how Fibber McGee and Molly won World War II. The author is Mickey Smith, um, whom we're talking with right now. And... Um, I'm just having a wonderful time, and I thank you so much for joining us. Anyone who wants to get in touch with him can send Walden an email, or you can send me an email at floridawriter at hotmail.com, floridawriter at hotmail.com, and we'll make sure that the message gets to him. Amen. Amen. Amen, and thank you so much, both of you, for having me. Uh, on the program and giving me the chance to talk about this book, about which I feel so strongly and have had so much fun writing. So, so um, can you do us one favor? Sure. Write another book. <laughs> Hold on just a minute. <laughs> you have to. You have to say this. Just a minute. Yes. We asked your husband to write another book. I know. I know. My in the marriage, but we love. He, he did. He did a great job. Thank you very much. <laughs> you have an anniversary coming up. I believe it was August. Is that correct? That's right. Fifty uh, years. So it, sometime after August, once you reach that that magic marker, after <laughs> August, he can start on another one. <laughs> oh, we'll see. <laughs> thank you. It's, thank you. Thank you, Mary. Nikki. I'm, I embarrassed her, but that. <laughs> oh, you know, she is so sweet. <laughs> she is sweet. Why do you think I've been married to her for fifty years? You know, I mean, that was that was good sportsmanship to uh, just pick up the phone and say, "Well, yes." <laughs> yeah, she's uh, that's the kind of person she is. We'll talk sure. about that again. But um, Walden is right on target. The book is wonderful, well, and I, I certainly hope people just take advantage of it. Uh, go to BearManorMedia.com and um, take a look at it, and by gosh, get one. Thank you so much. Our pleasure. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Mickey. All right. Thank you, and I'll be back in touch with you, okay? Sounds great. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. What a great, what a great human being. My goodness, that was fun. That was awesome. That was really great, and honest to goodness, I am not telling Ted.